Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 19, as we read from verse 8 to verse 20. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Almighty God, would you send your spirit this morning to help us? Your word is challenging. It's difficult. It's, It's often obscure and hard to understand. Would you help us today to hear what you say? And would you speak to our hearts so that we don't just learn something, but so that our hearts may be truly changed? It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What is magic? I actually think the dictionary gives a pretty good definition of magic. It says, magic is the practice of using charms, spells, or rituals to attempt to produce supernatural effects or control events in nature. The Bible has a lot to say about the practice of magic. If you look, for example, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.31, it's very clear. There's no question what God thinks of magic. He says, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. One of the things that the Bible insists upon is that the practice of magic is real. It isn't necessarily the, uh, the, a figment of people's imagination. 
And if you look at the history of Israel, one of the ongoing besetting temptations of Israel is this temptation towards sorcery, mediums, and necromancy. Mediums would claim to speak to the dead, and so if you wanted to speak to someone who was a long-lost loved one, you would go to a medium, and they would help you with this. One of the things that you do see as you read the Old Testament, though, is is you're left with almost this question about how often, when people spoke to the dead, was it real? Um, If you remember King Saul, he was the first king of Israel. Uh, Saul tried to speak with the spirit of Samuel. Samuel had died, and yet he was like Saul's advisor. And so Saul wanted to speak with Samuel, and so he went to the witch of Endor. And if you read the passage, one of the things you are sort of left thinking at the end is, this woman is absolutely terrified because what she's doing actually works. She actually sees Samuel, and it terrifies her. Um, and, does it, and my read on the passage is that she is probably a fraud who's made money doing this. And when she's been pulling the wool over people's eyes for so long that when she actually sees it work, it leaves her scared half to death. And so, you know, in Israel, who knows how much of this was real, how much of it was just a fraud. But if you want to get under the sin of practicing magic, if you want to ask yourself, why is this a sin? Then think about what magic is at its core. There's a passage in Isaiah that I think help gets at, helps get at the question a little bit. In Isaiah eight nineteen, God is speaking and he says, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? And you see, I think what God is telling Isaiah in a sense here is magic is an attempt to take reality into your hands and bend the universe to your will Instead of living in the reality and living within the confines of God's will. See, magic is an attempt to sort of gain knowledge that isn't for us. In the scriptures, God tells us that there are secret things that we aren't meant to know. And in a sense, the the practice of magic was forbidden because to do it was to step around God and try to control reality for yourself. That's That's what King Saul did, right? He lived in a world where God had explicitly decreed the death of Samuel. God said, no more Samuel. And what Saul does when he goes to the witch of Endor is he says, is that really necessary? Isn't it possible that I can have my way? God can have his decree and yet I can still speak with Samuel. You see what he's doing? He's stepping around God's decree so he can have things his way. Now, why do I mention magic? Well, magic permeates the book of Acts. Magic is a massively uh, influential practice in Israel, not only in Israel, but in the Greek world where Paul is going to and speaking. And especially here we see today in Ephesus. We also saw magic already sort of as a, a point of discussion earlier in the book of Acts when we met Simon the magician. And at that time, we sort of stepped around the question of magic so that we could talk about the other issues in the passage. But this morning, I'd like us to look more closely at it because it permeates our reading 
from beginning to end. And I want us to see what magic has to do with our passage. And so I want us to see three points today. The points are real power, cheap substitute, and a firm resolve. As we look at those three, they will move us through the passage. And so our first point is real power. Verses 8 to 12. In these verses, we see Paul's still in Ephesus, and he stays in Ephesus for two years. And it appears that what he does is, after he realizes he's really not going to be able to, to sustain meeting at the synagogue, he rents out the hall of Tyrannus, and he uses this space to preach and to teach and to make disciples. And he does this for the stretch of time that he's in Ephesus. And so the work that he does in Ephesus is among the longest stays of all of Paul's missionary journeys. And this shows how, to Paul, Ephesus is a strategically important location. And the end result of these two years of work, according to Luke, is this. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, certainly this is hyperbole. Probably not every single individual in all of Asia heard the the ministry of Paul, but it's certainly meant to make a point. And the point is this. Paul's ministry in Ephesus was successful. That's tricky, right? How do you measure success? Well, the people heard the word. That's the measure of success. Now, I call this first section real power, and, and we're going to focus on the miracles in just a moment But it's tempting for us to jump right to the miracles. And I think that says something about us, perhaps, as readers, perhaps as Christians. But I want you to notice this. The spread of the word of God is far, far, far more important than any miraculous event that you could ever witness. To spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to persuade them to repent of their sins, it is more precious than any extraordinary event you could ever see. So if you, want, if you want to see the most important display of the power of God, nothing you ever see will top sharing the saving message that God spent thousands of years bringing to pass and then seeing a person trust in that Savior. Right? That is greater than any miracle. That is greater than any sort of miraculous display you will ever see. But there is another type of display of the real power of God in these verses. Because in 11 and 12, it tells us that not only was Paul preaching, but God was doing miracles through Paul. Paul was not doing the miracles. If you look at the text, the text says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So what what happens is we have, we live in a world where there are people who make claims that they are healers. And what they often will say is that they have the power to heal. And yet, when we look at the passage, even Paul doesn't have the power to heal. Even Paul has no ability in and of himself. Peter had no power to heal, nor did anyone else at this time. It was always God who healed and showed his power. And he did it when he pleased through whom he pleased, and he, and he did it to confirm his message. It was his way of saying, listen to this person. The miracles are a confirmation of the messenger. And what does Luke tell us happens next? It says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick 
and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So you have two types of miracles Luke differentiates here. You have the sicknesses that are healed, and then you have exorcisms. And Paul says they are not the same, or Luke says they are not the same things. They are different things. But what is remarkable, and what stands out the most, even to Luke here, is the way that God uses Paul. Because Paul doesn't make physical contact with these people. They... They use daily objects, basically, whatever Paul had come in contact with, and they send it to these people, and God uses that to heal them. Now, this is a passage that gets badly misused today, especially by some TV evangelists who very often will prey on the ignorance of their viewers. Uh, In particular, one way that many TV evangelists make massive amounts of money is by frauding their viewers, defrauding their viewers. They will tell them, we're going to pray over this cloth and we're going to we're going to pray over these knickknacks and we're going to pray over these vials of oil. And then if you send us enough money, we're going to send these to you and they're going to heal your diseases and they're going to heal your illnesses. And sadly, uh, it is often those who are the most in need, the mo- those, those who have the least finances, those who are the most unhealthy that end up putting their eggs in this basket. They end up putting their hope in these things and they end up listening to these people. I remember one family that I talked to. They were very distressed because their infirm mother who barely had anything to live on was sending hundreds of dollars a month to this TV evangelist and her house was filled with these prayer cloths and they hadn't done anything for her, but she kept sending them hoping that something would happen. I want you to know this. Luke says these things are extraordinary. He uses that word, not me. He says these things are extraordinary and the word extraordinary means outside of the ordinary. They are not normal things. They are not things to be expected. Uh, It wasn't the norm. It wasn't the way that God normally did miracles in the early church. Luke is drawing special attention to this precisely because it is special and because it is unusual. And yet there are thieves and liars who claim that they have something as an ordinary ability that even the apostle himself did not have as an ordinary ability. God did this in this instance at this particular time because the work in Ephesus was so crucial that it was important that everyone know to listen to Paul, not just those who are physically in his presence. The one thing Calvin says about this, he says, when God healed the sick with Paul's handkerchiefs, it helped those who had never even seen the man to embrace his teaching. And that's what's happening here. Even those who aren't physically in Ephesus are being healed. And when they're healed by touching these household items that Paul touches, they know to listen to the message of the gospel. They know to listen to the gospel that Paul preaches. God, in a sense, it's like a seal. God is certifying, listen to this man. So before any other events in our passage Just keep this in mind. First and foremost, Luke shows us the real, true power of God. He sets us up by letting us see the truth, letting us see what God really can do. But the truth is often followed with the lie 
or it is a misunderstanding of the truth. And we see that in the second event today, which is the cheap substitute. In verse 13, we learn about these traveling Jewish exorcists who try to do an exorcism. Uh, When I was younger, this was a passage that stood out tremendously to me. Uh, Initially, when I was a kid, you know, just anything immature, I just thought, oh, these guys are running away naked. This is hilarious. Um, But then as I got older, I thought, wow, what a terrifying passage. (laughs) I really changed my opinion about what was really happening here. But these, these exorcists, they, it says that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Notice this. The result of this situation is a terrifying, botched exorcism. So verses 15 and 16 tell us what happened. It says, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man, leaped, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Seven men. It's this extraordinary passage because it's a sobering moment where we sort of realize what a threat demons actually did and do pose to people in the ancient world. Now in the West, in our own day and age, we can be so skeptical that we can sort of write these sort of events off, but I think that we should be very careful that we're not so rationalistic that we don't see the warning this passage presents to us. Satan is real. Demons are real. They aren't, they aren't little, little men in red suits with pitchforks. You know, they aren't jokes. They devastate the world around us. They devastate families. They ruin nations. And they do it by subtle influence, not by bombastic displays of power necessarily like we see here. And that's an important lesson. And I think it's an important warning for us here. We should take these things seriously. Maybe by this point, the church needed that warning. Maybe that's why it says this, the, 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 the name of Jesus was extolled after this, because people had forgotten. But there's something else very important here. These demons knew Jesus, and they knew Paul, but the demons didn't know the exorcist. Why is that? Is it because Paul was just so famous by now? His name had just spread, and everybody knew who Paul was? I don't think so. The real answer here is demons know God's people and these exorcists don't know Jesus. These exorcists do not know Jesus. What it, what it says is they don't even proclaim the name of Jesus. They admit it. They actually say, they, they say Paul proclaims Jesus. They don't have the spirit. They aren't in Christ. These are men who are going into a battle without armor and without weapons. All they have is magic words which don't work against demons. You see, it's not that they didn't say the right words. It's that they don't have the right hearts. And they don't have the help of the Lord Jesus. And they don't have the spirit protecting them. They are defenseless. They see the name of Jesus as something like a magic incantation. Remember I said at the beginning, magic is a running theme here, especially in Ephesus. 
And they think to themselves, if I just throw this name out there, maybe this demon will be paralyzed and he'll have to obey us. And you see, that's what magic is. Magic is taking control of the world around us without submitting to the Lord who is sovereign over that world. They want to be masters of the world, but they don't want to be mastered by the real master of this world. And it leaves them naked. It leaves them vulnerable. It leaves them wounded and ashamed and running for their lives. I do think we can learn the wrong lessons from what happens here. I remember years ago, uh, one person who was a supposed expert in demons saying that really what went wrong here was the seven sons of Skeva just didn't use the right formula. He said they should have cast the demons out in Jesus' name and they should have said it with authority. They should have said in the name of Jesus come out of that person. But instead, they let Paul's name slip in and they screwed up the spell. You know, they screwed up the formula. And that's why the demons didn't have to listen. This is actually a superstitious and magical view of words and the power of words. The problem here is not that they didn't use the right words. It's the reality behind the words. This isn't a Jesus that they believe in. This isn't a Jesus that they proclaim. Notice the answer they receive from the demons is, I don't have to listen to you. That's what they say to them. And I want you to know this. This is an important lesson from this passage. If you are a Christian, then just like Paul, the demons know your name. And Satan knows your name. And that should give you two responses. One, on the one hand, that means that the demons who were ultimately a threat to these unbelievers are no true threat to us. They can't destroy us. We don't have to fear them. Just like Paul didn't need to fear them. And just like these men, if they had been in Christ, wouldn't have needed to fear them. On the other hand, it should keep us watchful. And should keep us sober because... Satan may not be able to destroy us, but he will do what he can. If you're a Christian, you have a target on you. And if you don't, and you, and you won't feel like it's spiritual, it's not like you're instantly going to see little uh, uh, demons somehow in your vision or anything like that. It's not going to feel spiritual at all when it happens. You'll just feel down, or you just won't feel like reading your Bible. And so because the demons know your name, Christian, do what Paul says in the book of Ephesians and put on the armor of God. Soldier up each and every day. Don't go out defenseless. Don't go out unarmed. Something else to notice about the sons of Sceva. They they want the power of Jesus without belonging to Jesus. See, for them, the name of Jesus is just a tool that they think anybody can pick up and use like a hammer or a screwdriver. Just like the sons of Skeva, the world we live in, the world around us, wants the things that Jesus can do, and they don't want Jesus. They want the benefits that they think come from him, and they don't want to believe in him, and they certainly don't want to submit to him. Can we have Jesus' benefits? without actually being his people. See, they think that religion is like a medicine that you pour on 
So even secular people, that they begin to talk about religion as if it's therapeutic, but not actually true. And anytime the world wants the benefits of Jesus, but without bowing the knee to him, they are experiencing what the sons of Sceva experienced. I'll give you an example of this so you don't think I'm speaking in generalities. There is an atheist writer named Sam Harris. And Sam Harris wrote a book called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. And in this book, you know, again, remember, this is a man who's a dyed-in-the-wool atheist who sees that people do need the message of Christianity without the Christ. And he talks about this innate human need to know and feel and believe that there's something greater than us out there. Now, I don't usually quote atheists from the pulpit, but I'm going to do it this morning. This is what Sam Harris says. Remember, he's, he's an atheist. He says, Christianity is a terrifying and debasing fiction. But what about love, compassion, moral goodness, and self-transcendence? Notice those four things he wants. Love, compassion, goodness, and self-transcendence. He says, what about those things? Many people still imagine that religion is the true repository of these virtues. We need to change this. So notice what he wants. Sam Harris wants the core and the message of Christianity without the Christ. Right? He wants the call to love. He wants to tell people to love each other, but without the show of love that we see at the cross. This is very, very typical of the times in which we live. See, like the sons of Sceva, People admire what what Jesus taught, what Jesus had, what Jesus gave and lived out, but they don't love him. And the world does this constantly and incessantly with the message of Jesus. In fact, I think as more time goes on and the more and more our world becomes Christ-haunted, the more they will miss what Christianity gave to the world and they will try to have the icing without the cake. Right, goodness and compassion and love and self-transcendence are like the icing. And they say, I want those things. And then we say, well, 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 you can't, the, the icing doesn't exist without the cake. You gotta have the whole thing. They say, icing, give us the icing. Um, C.S. Lewis had a phrase for this. He called it men without chest. He says, we are creating men without chess. And when he said that, what he meant was this. The secular world tells people, you are just a thing. You do not have a soul. You are, uh, there is no God. You are self-created. Morality is self-created. It's just something that we decided on together. That's the message the world gives. And then they look around at society and they see the murder rates climbing and they look at the greed and they look at the hate and they decry the illness of the world and they wonder, why aren't people virtuous anymore? They don't want Christianity, but they want all the cultural goods that Christianity generates just by virtue of what it is and what it teaches and what it says about you and about me and about what we were made for. The sons of Sceva want the power of Christ without the power of the cross. Our culture wants goodness without the good. You see this? When the world wants Christ's gifts 
without having Christ. They aren't so different from these magicians who say, maybe I can say the right words. Maybe I can use the right spell. And maybe I can have the power without needing to have the God that I need to submit to. And so just like these exorcists, those who want Christ's benefits without the Savior will one way or another flee naked and wounded. This is the second thing that we see. Immediately on the heels of Christ's true power, we see the cheap substitute. Third, this morning, we see firm resolve. The faithfulness of the church and even the aftermath of this botched exorcism has an impact. And the passage says in verse 17 that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This work that Paul is doing has an impact and evangelism takes place and lives are changed. And when that happens, the people of Ephesus respond and they respond with obedience. They actually actively do something because of it. And before we see what they do, just keep something in mind. Remember this, Ephesus was a center of occult activity and occult writings. It wasn't just a spiritual place. This was a place that was centered around the occult. Um, when we used to live in Arizona, we loved to go visit Sedona, Arizona. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Sedona, Arizona. It's a beautiful place, just a gorgeous place. It's like in a valley, and it's surrounded by red rocks on every side. And you just, you, it's, when you live there, you're living in a city, but you're living in nature. It's really a really remarkable place. But one of the things that you see is the place is basically the new age capital of the world. Just every place you go into, there are crystal balls and just books and books and books on new age spirituality and this sort of thing. And much like Sedona is is like ground zero for the new age movement, Ephesus was like ground zero for the occult. I mean, this place is all about the occult. That's what they were built around. And I do think when we think about the occult, we think of something that's cartoonish. We have a cartoonish vision of the occult. We think of of witches making brew, leaning over a, a giant kettle, or we think of, uh, you know, scary guys listening to death metal and killing animals in their basement and scaring children and dressing as clowns. You know, that's sort of what we picture. But actually, the way occultism is understood today by its practitioners is much more mundane and maybe a little less cliched than we have in our minds. I was once listening to a podcast, and there was an author on that podcast, and he began talking about the occult, and he said he was a practitioner of it, and uh, it was remarkable to hear him say, I use these words, and I call upon these gods. I don't believe in them at all, but I call on them because these are words that work. They work when I say them, and when I say them, I get what I want. And so remember, I, I said before, magic is an attempt to take reality into our hands and bend the universe to our will instead of living in the reality and confines of God's will. And this man said that he believed he owed his success and his career to the practice of magic. And so when we talk about the occult and when we talk about magic, we need to remember this isn't something that people only did a very long time ago. It still happens today. And in fact, it's on the rise. Uh, As people jettison Christianity 
there is still a deep, deep spiritual hunger inside of people. And so because they've already written off the scriptures and they've written off the Bible, they end up grasping for other things. And many times what they grasp onto is a magical worldview like the occult. This is more prevalent than we think also. I know that sometimes uh, we think of magic only as being supernatural in nature, but the reality is the sin that's underneath of the occult, the sin that's underneath of the practice of magic is the sin of grabbing hold of the world around us and refusing to live in God's world. So any worldview that says, when it all costs, it doesn't matter what it takes, I will bend the universe to my will, Anyone who says that is an inheritor of this way of thinking. We are always in danger. Just like Israel was always in danger of the occult and always in danger of magic, it's not like we're exempt from that problem. Whenever we're willing to do anything to get what we want, we are at risk of having a magical mindset. Today, we don't think it's magical words and ceremonies, but maybe we're willing to bend the rules or ignore God's law because we just really, really want something that we know is forbidden. And so because of that, the greatest antidote, if you want to inoculate your family, let's think about our families for a moment. Do you want to inoculate your family against this sin, against this temptation? The greatest antidote we can give our children against the occult is to teach them to willingly live in God's world, under God's limits, and to love God's will. Hatred of God, hatred of his will, autonomy, and self-determination are at the core of what occultism teaches. There is nothing more occult than suffering and saying, I will do anything, no matter what. To change my circumstances. I will hurt. I will steal. I will do anything no matter what it takes. That is the occult mindset. But there is no greater expression of the opposite. There is no greater expression of holiness that I can think of than standing in the midst of sorrow and saying, I know that whatever my God ordains is right. Those are two opposite responses. Whether the temptation is to practice the occult or just to live by the same principles of the occult, the response is still important. You see, the Ephesians, what do they do here? They set a model for us about how to turn away from our old lives and our old ways of thinking and our old ways of living. Notice what they do. They broke away from this way of life. First, the text says, they confessed and disclosed their practices. That's the first thing the text says. They admitted what they did. They admitted that they tried to manipulate and control the universe. They admitted it. The next thing they did was they showed their repentance by making an irreversible break with their old lives. Uh, The text actually says they took all their books about the occult and they made them a bonfire. They literally put them all in the flames. And finally, what did they do? It says they considered following Jesus better than money. Why do I say that? Well, the passage tells us this was, these were costly books. These were not just cheap books. Remember, books back then are not easy to produce. It's not like today where you can just have houses full of books that nobody can even read all of them. Instead, no, these books are hard to come by. They're costly. They're expensive. 
Um, the passage actually says that there's a there there the that the amount of books they burned was the equivalent of about enough money for 100 families to live for 500 days. So just think about the amount of money going up in flames. Following Jesus is costly. Following Jesus requires sacrifice. Uh, Cortez, when he came to the New World, it was said that he made his men burn their ships. And the rationale for that was because it wasn't possible for them to stay with the ships and fulfill the mission they'd been given. They had to choose one or the other, either stay with the ships or fulfill the mission, but you can't have both. And maybe there are not literal books that you need to burn. Maybe there are. But are there parts of your old life, all these years you've held on to and you've kept them? Is it time for them to burn? Is it time for them to go? Are there things that you've made peace with? You've, you've held on to little, little nuggets of them and said, I got rid of most of this, but I'm still holding on to this one thing. Is there something in your life that you're holding on to that is keeping you from living your life in Christ? You can't do both. You either have to burn the ships or you have to go on the mission, but you can't do both. Could it be that in the text this morning, God is showing us that just like the Ephesians, there's no room for us to live for Christ and keep the world's way of living and thinking? He calls us to do it for his own glory. Look at the last words of the passage this morning. After they repented and after they abandoned their old life, what happened? It says, the word of the Lord continued to increase And prevail mightily. Let's ask our God to make that our passion and our prevailing joy. More than self, more than things, let us be a people who love God above it all. Let's pray. Lord, Only you can search and know the heart. And so this morning, search our hearts. Show us if there's some unclean way within us. Show us if there is some way in which we have prized ourselves and our priorities and ignored you. Make us love Jesus so much that seeing the world's way of thinking disappear from our hearts and minds gives us a holy satisfaction, and a determination to follow you. In Christ's name we pray.